Welcome to Circus Futures European Circus Conversations, a series of podcasts featuring traditional and contemporary circus professionals from across Europe. My name is Laura Murphy. I'm a UK-based contemporary circus artist and a Circus Next laureate. This podcast features David Konyot, an award-winning traditional circus Anglo-Hungarian musical clown. David will tell us about his own circus journey and talk about what he feels constitutes innovation in circus. Hello, my name is David Conyot, and on both sides of my family I can trace my circus history back to the mid-1600s and maybe even a little earlier. Apart from school and early years in the theatre, my whole life has been in circus. As a ringmaster, a white-faced clown, a musical clown, a producer, and recently a writer of critiques and articles about circus. My journey actually starts in the mid-17th century with the first record of Emmanuel Louis Blumenfeld, a gaukler and style dancer, that's a traveller and rope walker. He was in Wuppertal in Germany, and he was the earliest of the family that we can trace. From him, through many decades, all seemingly in circus in one way or another, we come to my great-grandmother, Henrietta Blumenfeld the eldest daughter of the Blumenfeld family running the circus, one of the biggest shows in Germany. She married a Hungarian called Leopold Konyot, and they started Konyot Circus in Hungary around 1860. My English ancestors go back even further. On my father's side, I am descended from two UK circus dynasties, the Fossets and the Eldings. My great-grandfather was funny, Harry Fossett, He was a clown who was still working at the age of 80. Whether or not he was funny, nobody will talk about. But he was a clown and he was 80 and he was working. He was married to my great-grandmother, Harriet Yelding. Growing up, my own family circumstances were somewhat strained. And I didn't learn a lot about the history of my family. But in a chance meeting in 1982 with a very knowledgeable German circus fan, I was given the information on the blumenfeld Conyot storyline And that piqued my interest. I then started talking to the older generation of Fossets and Yeldings and pieced together what is a remarkably similar story to that of the Blumenfelds and Cognots. In fact, it is the story of European circus and circus families through the ages. My own particular journey started with working in musicals and comedies in the theatre, pantomime, summer seasons, a few years on the nightclub circuit as a stand-up comic, compare and general entertainer. It led to starring in the West End of London in a successful comedy farce, all of which convinced me I should hurry back to circus. Since 73, I have stayed in circus, both in UK and Europe, starting as a ringmaster with Chipperfield Circus, progressing to different shows until in 1983, when I was a white clown stroke ringmaster on Circus Barham in Germany. From 1986 to present, I've appeared everywhere with my own clown troupe or as a solo reprise clown, and I am now retired or semi-retired, pick a word, any will do. That's my journey so far, but two of my daughters are still continuing in circus. So even when my journey ends, as it will inevitably, it will always continue. The second question was about innovation, which is difficult. I, I would say that the original innovators were those gauklers and sile dancers, voyageurs and saltimbanks, the street performers who played in marketplaces, village squares. They also appeared 
for special celebrations, birthdays, weddings and the like, in the castles and stately homes, the chateaus and the schlosses around Europe. They were rewarded by what was thrown into the hat that they laid down on the floor at the start of each performance. If the hat came back full of money, they knew that what they were doing was good. If, on the other hand, it came back empty, then it was time to change the performance and come up with something new to please the customer. That was innovation on the hoof, and they did it successfully for generations. Roaming groups of musicians, wandering companies of artists, sticking together for a season till the money got scarce and then moving on to another group where maybe their luck would be better. Apart from my ancestors, there were, of course, other families and companies following the same path, some with fairground-type presentations, others with acrobatic feats, juggling, wire-walking, displays of strength, magic, boxing and wrestling booths, some selling charms and potions, fortune-telling, basically anything that would draw a crowd and earn a little money from the hat. Some would have a closed space, a wooden frame with a material or wooden wall where the event took place inside on payment of an admission price. Of course, amongst all this would be the coarser elements of travelling society, the hookers, the pickpockets, the swindlers, the charlatans. No section of society is pure and unsullied, and everyone has to make a living. And so it continued until 1768 and the arrival of Philip Astley, which altered the dynamic. OK, it's time for a couple of mythbusters. Number one. Philip Astley never coined or even used the word circus. His first arena in Waterloo was called Astley's Amphitheatre, and his riding displays always took place in the ride or the circle. The word circus was first used in modern terms by a man called Charles Dibdin. He was a well-known writer and composer of pantomimes for the London theatres, and along with Charles Hughes, who was to become Astley's competitor later on, they started the Royal Circus and Philharmonic Academy in 1782. They didn't go in for short titles, did they, in the 1800s? Mythbuster number two. Astley was not the first to do trick riding. It was done before by a man called Old Samson, who Astley had trained under as an apprentice when he left the army. In 1770, Astley moved from Waterloo to Westminster Bridge, where he erected covered seating and then engaged artists to perform in between his riding displays. At first it was jugglers, acrobats and a couple of clowns, but I have no doubt that among them there would have been a Fawcett or a Yelding or one of the other travelling families. Astley told them when and where to perform and how much time they had to perform while he changed his horses or costumes, etc. This meant that their historical situation underwent a huge and dramatic change. It's another innovation, if that's what you want to call it. Those lineages and families of acrobats, jugglers, clowns, etc. had performed all through Europe as independents. Now they were becoming part of an integrated entertainment for which an all-inclusive ticket was sold, with the money going to the director, stroke producer, stroke owner, with the artist receiving a payment for which he would have to negotiate at the same time as other artists were negotiating for the same position. So we have what is actually a reverse auction, with the job going to the bidder proposing the lesser sum. 
At the same time, along with that loss, I think they also lost a little of their artistic independence, being replaced by the whim and personal taste of the aforementioned director, owner, producers, the majority of whom were and still are businessmen or private people, in our parlance we call them jossers, who had seen an opportunity to make money and started a circus. This is still going on today in many shows where a director or a producer with little or scant knowledge of the particular art he is producing, especially comedy, tries to persuade the artist that his vision overrides the artist's knowledge and experience instead of trying to cooperate and work together for a better solution. I know because it has happened to me many times. Back to the 1800s. This state of affairs with the artists and directors grew and continued with the building of hundreds of circus amphitheatres all over Europe and from the mid-1800s in travelling shows with tents and mobile structures called fit-ups. In the UK, early circus shows were built around stories. Dick Turpin's Ride to York was one very popular theme. Others were based on different tales. Copenhagen and Marengo, Napoleon and Wellington's horses at the Battle of Waterloo was a firm favourite. I know there was one based around Shakespeare's jester, Will Kemp, who famously danced all the way from London to Norwich. Another example of innovation. My great-grandfather, Leopold, had his successful circus in Hungary, but was always thwarted by the rule of not being able to perform on a Sunday, as it was the Lord's Day. Sunday being the one day when workers didn't work, that is. It should have been a day when they could relax, enjoy themselves, go to the circus, but no, working on the Lord's Earth on the Lord's Day was blasphemy. Now, Philip Astley had had the same situation in the 1770s. He got round it by putting flat saddles on some horses, binding the horses together and putting wood on the top to make a stage, saying that the artists were no longer performing on the Lord's ground. It was cheeky, and we're not sure for how long it worked, but at least he tried. Leopold did something else. He built a raft, a big one. He erected the tent and all the equipment on it and floated the whole thing down the Danube, occasionally mooring by the bank to put a performance on and then moving on. His claim was he was not on the Lord's earth because this was the water and water moves. Maybe it was an homage and he got the idea from the American steamboats on the Mississippi, travelling with full opera and sometimes burlesque companies to entertain passengers. But it would certainly come under the heading of innovation. Leopold was a great man. When he died in 1916, his obituary called him the father of Hungarian circus. His descendants are still involved and still appearing and still performing in circuses from Alaska down to Chile and the Americas and in the majority of European countries. And believe me, that is a, a serious legacy. So innovation is constant in circus. The late 1800s saw a further development of these travelling shows. The introduction of wild animal displays, which until then, apart from horses, dogs and other domestic animals, would have been in a travelling menagerie or a fair. So circus life continued along this familiar route for another hundred years. In countries where it would have been the only source of affordable entertainment, apart from the animal village fete, fête du village in France, Dorffest in Germany. All over Europe, the same pattern was played out, mostly by the same families who had been performing for generations. They were intermarrying. Maybe the newly married couple would start a new circus, going for 20, 30 years, and then a new generation took over. Or maybe they'd go back to being just performers. In two world wars, circus and fairground men performed heroically for their countries, many receiving huge commendations and honours. 
One such man got the Croix de Guerre from France, Victoria Cross from England, and the highest Russian Medal of Honor. He was a showman. An instance from a book about WW1 by Helen Averly is a letter from a colonel requesting more circus and fairground men at the front because they can turn their hand to anything. This book features a small article about my English grandfather, Richard, who, because of his experience with circus horses, was put in charge of a large horse-drawn gun carriage. Unfortunately, he was gassed and sent home to recuperate. After he recovered, he became a strong man known as the Young Sandow. And with my grandmother, Carrie Fawcett, they started their own show. Circus throughout the world was flourishing, getting bigger and more audacious all the time. The 20th century in the UK saw the big three of Chipperfields, Billy Smart and Bertram Mills, all with seating capacities in the thousands. Touring the country from top to bottom, each show with its own particular style. Billy Smart's all glitter and glamour. Charity performances every autumn on Clapham Common, with film stars and TV stars in attendance. Chipperfields with their wild animal spectaculars, danger and drama in sequined costumes. Bertram Mills was the epitome of elegance and class. The shows were a parade of the very best artists. Two men in full coachman dress and white powdered wigs were there just to open and close the ring fence for the entrance and exit of the animals. The royal family were regular visitors every winter at the Bertram Mills Circus in the Olympia Exhibition Hall. So for me, growing up in the 50s, circus was a crash-bang affair with those bigger shows featuring chariot races, Human cannonballs, somersaulting cars, huge parades accompanying big troops of artists. We were among them. My father worked for some of the biggest shows. They did 13, 14 shows a week, and most of the time they were packed. Down the scale with the family shows, smaller tents, smaller companies, but still thriving. Life was good, but a change was coming. Slowly, but surely, over the years, these shows were the architects of their own downfall. Within a decade, all three had gone. Chipperfields went to South Africa in 1960, looking for new pastures. It was an episode from which they would never fully recover. Bertram Mills closed its doors around the same time, citing competition from TV for their loss of revenue. And because they were quoted on the stock market and were irresponsible to shareholders, they couldn't continue. Billy Sparks carried on for a few more years, but that was mainly for the Easter and Christmas shows on the television. But eventually they too succumbed. To the inevitable. The rapid rise of TV had taken everyone by surprise. Theatres, nightclubs and social clubs reacted quickly and they featured anyone who they could advertise as seen on TV. But circus carried on doing what they had been doing, just getting smaller to accommodate the drop in audience numbers. Many went off the road. In the mid-70s, there were a few attempts to modernise Seaside Special, Circus World Champions. It was a Canadian circus that had a weekly TV show hosted by Donny and Marie Osmond. Yeah. Some of the smaller circuses survived, a few run by descendants of the original travelling families, but none of them achieved the height or success of the big shows. Over the following years, many came and went. And at present, the most successful, having survived over 20 years, is Zippo Circus. On the 4th of June 1980, an Austrian graphic designer called Bernhard Powell turned Circus upside down. He started Circus Roncalli in Germany and he came at Circus from a totally different direction. He viewed it as a pure art form 
but with comedy as its central pillar. His philosophy was, the show starts when you buy your ticket and I'm going to keep you laughing. The costumes, music, lighting and every artistic performance was coordinated throughout the whole show. He was hugely successful. And we know that because nearly every other circus copied something from him. Over the whole world, you can see the Roncalli effect and the influence he had, not just on the music, lighting and costumes. It was bringing back that pure joy of the contact between performer and audience. Four years later, from humble street entertaining beginnings, the world first heard of Cirque du Soleil, who since then have altered the meaning of what circus is for a whole generation. The success of Soleil has had an effect on circus. Not the one that Roncalli had, completely the opposite, in fact. Their opera circus, with its unique style of costumes and makeup, specially written music and lyrics, which for some could be Klingon and Esperanto for all the emotion and passion it conveys, but they brought a new audience. They have, over recent years, employed different directors, which has resulted in some remarkable productions, one of which, called Corteo, was, in my opinion, the closest they came to a circus story. Lately, their show companies are mainly comprised of ex-gymnasts and athletes, many from Eastern European countries, who are interchangeable with cast members from other Soleil shows, which is a sort of pick-and-mix circus option. My personal disagreement is their disregard for the individual artists, as shown by the fact that they stopped naming them in the printed programme. And at the end of a Soleil DVD, there is a rolling scroll naming all the technicians, riggers, electricians, costume and makeup designers, directors and producers, but not one actual performer is named. What a change that is from the days when a brightly coloured poster would proudly proclaim who you would see in the ring when you bought your ticket. Many shows around the world, both static and mobile, have copied the Soleil style, offering and delivering a brand of antiseptic, easy on the eye and even easier on the brain, corporate type performance. And Soleil, of course, was the first major show to do away with the animal acts. The animal question that has haunted circus for over 50 years. The rights and wrongs are a matter of personal beliefs and opinions, and I'm not going to wade into that morass in this podcast. That'll do for another time. But for many circuses, the removal of the wild animals meant a lot less financial outlay, so they could engage two or three acts to replace the animals and still save money. Plus, they could explain their decision as progressive, moral and ethical. So it was a win-win situation for them, when in reality... Getting rid of the animal acts was nothing to do with morals or ethics. It was pure economics. It was all about the money. One result is that wild animals in metal cages have now been replaced by motorbike riders in metal cages. And that's not innovation. Innovation in music, however, is something different. In earlier times, every show had a band, from a large orchestra down to a piano and drums. When I was very young, I was on holiday on my uncle's circus and I played the drums for the show along to old 78 records played on a panatrope. That was old fashioned even in the 50s. Live music was an invaluable aid. If an artist made a mistake in their routine, which added time to the act, it didn't matter. The band under the band leader would adjust accordingly, playing on until the next cue was due. But this too fell by the wayside for economic reasons. 
new wage standards set by equity and the musicians union back in the 60s affected nearly all live entertainment in the UK. Theatre shows cut back on chorus dances. Pit orchestras got smaller. Many circuses converted to cassettes, then mini discs, followed by CDs. And now most shows have digital sound systems with a huge range of editing options, so precise that it leaves no room for error. And of course, there's no band leader to help out in a tricky situation. A pure example of this is a few years ago at the Budapest Circus Festival, which incidentally has a wonderful live band. But despite this, many artists prefer to work to their own digital recordings. One of these was young lady, Low Wire Walker, with a beautiful routine full of wonderful tricks, moves and choreography, all synchronised with her music. Unfortunately, on the day of the festival, she fell off. She immediately got back on the wire, but those few seconds that she lost meant that the climax of the routine was performed in an embarrassed silence. She got huge applause from a sympathetic Hungarian audience, but it wasn't the same. I know, as a musical clown, that when I'm in front of a live band, there is a huge difference in the atmosphere of the show. But money makes it unrealistic for all but the very top circuses to be able to afford the luxury of live music. Is the internet innovation or not? From its earliest days, the circus arts and its practitioners have been successful through change and innovation, with everyone trying to reach a level which would earn them a good living. They practice not just to keep up to the standard, but to improve so that new tricks or variations of old ones would result from this constant practice. With little opportunity to see other artists in the same discipline performing, every act was in some way individual and unique. TV, of course, changed this. Variety shows featuring circus acts, plus specialist shows like the aforementioned seaside specials, the Christmas and Easter circuses, they were the staple diet on the TV schedule for a decade or more. And the advent of video recorders meant that those shows and acts could be recorded and copied. And they were. The rise of the internet has made that process even easier. At the press of a key, one can see acts and shows and routines from every corner of the world on your computer screen. The other element of traditional circus, a phrase I intensely dislike, is that it has undercome a big change in clowning and comedy. In earlier, more innocent times, artists who had performed their own act for many years and changed to clowning as they got older, used their knowledge and experience for the benefit of the show. Reprise clowns, they're called carpet clowns in America, did what that title suggests. Following a speciality act, would it be a juggler, a wire walker, acrobat or whatever, they would come in and reprise that act in a comic way. A for the humour and B to give time for the props to change for the next artist as well as keeping a continuity going in the show. The French circuses like Medrano and Buglion would employ a white-faced clown and one or two Augustes separately and then they would work together for the season resulting in different styles of comedy and occasionally producing something magical. Some of the old routines are still performed today Bees and Honey, Old Joe's Goes, Dead and Alive, Sleepwalker. But lately, the upsurge of political correctness has made it difficult for clowns to get laughs without offending someone or appearing to offend someone. Usually, the ones who complain are not offended for themselves. They're offended on behalf of somebody else. Their normal reaction is, well, we have a very wide sense of humour, a phrase which is the same as the one which starts, 
some of my best friends are, you know what I mean. In many shows, clowns have been replaced by characters doing something with the public or performing comic interludes, which have absolutely no relevance to anything in the show. They're more akin to the test card of the early TV days. There are clowns who've tackled the situation well and adapted to the new rules. For them, innovation and invention has always been a way of life. Following the demise of the travelling shows in the latter half of the 20th century and the first two decades of the 21st, that innovative spark that started with those original families, then shone a little through the Astley years, was rekindled, albeit with different results, by the Roncalli and Soleil examples. Now, with the growth of the festival scene and smaller companies touring throughout Europe, it's been rekindled into a brilliant flame. The new generation of performers, many of them from non-circus families and normal backgrounds, are celebrating the circus arts, bringing fresh ideas and a new diversity, heralding a new era and a new spirit. Their eyes are wide open to all possibilities. Nothing and no one is excluded. And this is the recreation of those original families who also knew no prejudice, accepted everyone and just worked for the joy of entertaining and to put bread on the table. The celebration of diversity in circus, though, is a little misleading. One of the first travelling circus directors in the mid-1800s was a black man, Pablo Fanke, celebrated in the Beatles song for the benefit of Mr Kite, a song actually about those early circus days, seen on a poster by John Lennon in an antique shop. There have been many successful female circus directors, among them Ada Mary Chapman, who ran a hugely successful circus in the UK. Kathleen Williams, a director of the Blackpool Tile Circus many years ago. Crystal Sembach-Krohn, a director of the largest circus in Germany until her recent unfortunate demise. Arlette Gruss, French circus director. Mariska Utfush, for many years, director of the Hungarian National Circus. The wildly unsuccessful and wonderful Gifford Circus was the brainchild of the late and much-missed Nell Gifford, who through pure love of circus built a monument which in years to come will put her name up there with the Astleys, Ringlings and Roncalis in the Circus Hall of Fame. There are other Giffords around. In Europe, there are many small independent shows, some in tents, some in theatres and halls, some doing street entertaining, just doing what they love and in inviting an audience to join them in celebration of the circus arts. I don't know whether this is innovation or is it just the natural development of the art form that can never stand still and a people who always strive to be better tomorrow than they were yesterday. Circus performers throughout the ages have accepted everyone into their society, even while being rejected by many in society. Their first question is never, who are you? Where do you come from? What God do you worship? That first question is, what do you do? Are you any good? The second question is always, would you like a coffee? Circus in all its forms will continue to innovate and develop long after we're all gone, because as long as there is one person who wants to stand on their hands, throw a somersault, juggle or make someone laugh, circus will survive. Why? Because that's how it always has. You will notice I never mentioned COVID. In the last going on four centuries that I've been talking about the circus families, they have survived civil wars, world wars, plagues, black deaths. So COVID will also pass. If you got this far, thank you for listening. Maybe there was something you learned that you didn't know or something I said that made you smile. I do hope so. I'm a clown and that's my job. Thank you for listening. Do join us for further Circus Futures European Circus Conversations. This podcast has been supported using public funding by Arts Council England and is lottery funded. 
Additional funding for Circus Futures activities has been provided by the Creative Europe Programme of the European Union.